you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 22 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard, barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, as always, really good to see you. And last week you will recall that barrister Martin Canny came into the studio to tell us about the third edition of his book, The Limitation of Actions. And if you remember, he told us that the second edition of his book was the book that went missing the most off the law library shelves uh, and so obviously it was very popular with the readers. Did you missing copies well, there, you know, We put out a plaintive cry at the end mm-hmm. and we said, come, you know, find it under the bed, you know, root in the boot of the car, maybe that's where it is. I wonder, did many of them come back? We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Anyway, for this show, we are off on our travels to the land down under, no less, talking to leading QC, or should I say KC, uh, Jeffrey Robertson, who will join us through the magic of Zoom from his home in Sydney. Listeners to this show will know that Jeffrey's book Lawfare has been referenced on a number of occasions on this show, and therefore we thought we should talk to the man himself. We're very much looking forward to this, Mark, aren't we? Yeah, no, he's he's, he's an amazing writer, and I, I mean I've been a fan for a long time, so it's, it was he, a real privilege. He's kind of a little bit yeah. box office yeah. this lad, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Wow, I'm looking forward to that myself. Okay, and and just to say, this is going to be done on Zoom because we've always brought you interviews that we're in. First we're all time in the we room haven't together. been live, yeah. So I hope it'll work out, but I think it will. Hopefully it will. Okay, let's start with three decisions that you have uh, identified from the Decisis website. The first is a defamation case. This is the case of Tracy versus Independent Newspapers, a decision of Judge Aileen Donnelly in the Court of Appeal. The background here, Mark, concerns reports in national newspapers that the plaintiff had been convicted of assault. However, he had been given the Probation Act uh, and accordingly this did not constitute a conviction that was kind of what the defamatory action was about. I know this is quite a technical case but that's the background to it. One of the extraordinary things about this is how long ago the the issue dates back to because it was in 2008 that he faced a charge of assault before the district court and what the newspapers reported was that he had been convicted of assault and given the Probation Act. Now in fact what happened was that the district court found that the facts had been proven but because he was given the Probation Act, that does not amount to a conviction. So the newspapers were wrong in saying that he'd been convicted. He'd had the Probation Act, which meant he wasn't convicted. Now, he then brought an action against the newspapers, and it had been up and down to the Supreme Court and back again. But what came before the courts here was that there was an application by the the newspapers to dismiss the action on the basis of qualified privilege because they said that because this was a, um, a fair and accurate report of a, well, not, well should we say, a, a fair report of court proceedings yes. um, and that because the, the, um, the, there was the, the defamation was technical, yeah. there was, and, but, but because it was before the High Court, a, a, high court, a, a defamation action in the High Court is heard before a jury. Yes. And so while the High Court had said that it could be dealt with by way of preliminary appeal, that decision went, by preliminary issue, sorry, that matter went then before the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal said, no, the issue of qualified privilege 
is a matter of substance in the case. And so that in itself has goes to be before heard by the, the jury. jury. Exactly. Okay, so the yeah. jury has yeah. to hear everything. That's exactly. what they said. Okay, yeah. really yeah. good. Well, really well explained. Okay, next to a case relating to mental capacity and whether or not the individual in question was capable of consenting to a course of treatment, medical treatment in this case. This is the case of EC versus the Health Service Executive, a decision of Ms. Justice Neve Highland at the High Court. In this case, the plaintiff was suffering from a psychotic illness and had been prescribed a course of oral medication. Yeah, that's right. And the what the plaintiff in this case had done was made an application to for, to the court to restrain the the um, the medical practitioners from from um, giving him um, medical treatment without his consent. He got the uh, the injunction, but that was then set aside by the court on the basis that there was uncontested evidence that he did not have capacity, that he could not be relied upon to take his medication. So they basically, they, they, they relied on the evidence of the medical practitioners in the case. Okay, really good, Mark. And finally, the Court of Appeal has dismissed a challenge to a finding made by the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal. This is the case of Lohan versus the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal, a Court of Appeal decision by Ms. Justice Caroline Costello. And the issue here, I think, concerned whether a Accountants who were appointed to carry out an investigation into the solicitor's practice were were properly appointed. That's right. So obviously, the solicitor's disciplinary tribunal—they are the body whose job it is to ensure that solicitors are, are, are you know, using client money properly, that their client accounts are being dealt with properly. They had appointed accountants to investigate this particular firm. The firm brought judicial review proceedings to set aside the decision to appoint the accountants and. The, um, the 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 High Court uh, looked at the matter and held that the um, that the accountants had been properly appointed by the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal, and that was then upheld by the the Court of Appeal. Okay, really good. Okay, so back shortly with Geoffrey Robertson. Silence in the Fifth Court. So we are delighted to be joined here in the Fifth Court by Geoffrey Robertson, who is a barrister and King's Counsel, who needs no introduction to most of our listeners, um, author of several key books, including one that I'm holding in my hand, Freedom, the Individual and the Law, which I used a lot while I was lecturing media law, and um, author of uh, two books of memoirs. And he's here today to talk to us about this book, Lawfare, How Russians, the Rich and the Government Try to Prevent Free Speech and How to Stop Them. So that's quite an ambitious um, title for a very short book. So essentially, Jeffrey Robertson, what you are um, outlining in your book is how the defamation laws and privacy laws have been used by the super rich and particularly Russian oligarchs to close down media investigations and effectively to, to cover up wrongdoing, essentially, from the public. How big a problem do you think this is? I think it's been a consistent problem. It's been part of what I see as British hypocrisy about a country of free speech. This is whenever you talk to British politicians or judges, they rhapsodize about British tradition of freedom of speech. But I've worked as a lawyer, a media lawyer for so many years. And I know the truth, which is that Britain does not have free speech. It has expensive speech, because if you say what you think, you're liable for millions of pounds in Mm. not so much damages, but in legal costs. And this 
uh, enables the rich and more recently the Russian oligarchs, which is why it's suddenly been noticed, enables the rich to suppress criticisms, very often justified criticisms of themselves. So uh, what I wanted to do was at this point where we are concerned about uh, the supporters of Putin and giving them uh, free reign to explain that Britain doesn't have free speech, that our history in this respect is quite wretched, and mm. that we could change the law so as to enable criticism of the wealthy that is not allowed at present. Do you, do you think this is a problem that's clear to all of your colleagues? I mean, is this something, do you, do you think, having arrived in the UK from Australia, you sort of look with a slightly more jaundiced eye on British justice? Or do you think that, that it is this justice game, as you described it, is, is something that is clear to all of the players in it? Undoubtedly true. I think that I saw it not with a jaundiced eye, with an over-optimistic eye. I came from the colonies, the former colonies, with expectation that Britain would be a place of liberal uh, rule, that it would be like I read about in the New Statesman. Uh, and others came with the same feeling, Peter Hain, Patricia Hewitt and so on, coming from South Africa, coming from New Zealand. We all had such high hopes of Britain only to get here <laughs> and to find eventually that it was a confidence trick and that uh, it really didn't surpass our expectations, but we had to lower our expectations. The first case I did was the Oz case, which was in 1971, which actually uh, had the entire might of British law pressing down on uh, a, a little underground magazine. So things have improved since then, but one thing that hasn't improved, and it was there in the 70s and 80s, uh, Robert Maxwell exploited it uh, religiously. Anyone who said yep. anything rude about Robert Maxwell or Geoffrey Archer or <clears throat> uh, James, uh, some of the other, uh, James Goldsmith, and enormously wealthy people were hit with libel writs. And anyone who yep. repeated it, even uh, booksellers who sold the, these books were, were uh, effectively threatened by libel actions. And I think we, we only noticed the impact of libel actions with the Russians when suddenly it, it became, uh, we realized that books were not being published about Putin and his cronies uh, because their expensive reputation lawyers in London had threatened the publishers with multi-million pound libel actions if they went ahead and published. So books were actually uh, <laughs> publishers like Cambridge University Press, which had been uh, delighted to get high quality books setting out Putin's corruption, uh, found that they couldn't proceed and wouldn't proceed mm. 
simply because of the cost. And you've suggested uh, a number of measures to, to, to rebalance matters in favour of media organisations. One mm. of them is to increase the burden of proof on the plaintiff. Now, I mean, at mm. the moment you need to prove that the statement is defamatory and then the burden of proof effectively shifts to the publisher. Mm. What additional burden could you place on the plaintiff? Would, would you suggest the, the, the necessity to prove the, 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 the untruth of the, the statement? Libel is the only civil action where the person coming to court demanding apologies, demanding compensation, demanding money does not have to prove the essence of their case. In every other civil action, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff, on the claimant. Yeah. But in libel, it shifts uh, so long as the plaintiff shows that the article is written about him or her, uh, it's for the defence, the media defence, to prove it. But you often. do need to prove that, prove that it's defamatory, don't you? No, you've got to prove it's, it's defamatory if mm. it lowers your reputation in yeah. the eyes of right-minded people, a very <laughs> British uh, definition. But, you know, if, if the chaps at the club don't look on you askance, this is defamatory. But it is then the burden shifts to the media to prove truth. And with these Russians, and I've been dealing with Russians when they first started to use the British courts, one of our famous Sue Grabbit and Run. They called him libel lawyers, Peter Carter went to Russia and said to the oligarchs, come to Britain to sue. It's a much more favourable uh, to you. And of course, the situation is that the Russian oligarchs don't sue in Russia because everyone will think they've bribed the judge. They don't sue in America because America has the First Amendment but they come to Britain and they've been coming to Britain. And of course, when friends of Putin started coming to Britain and muzzling uh, books and articles about uh, Putin, when Putin, truth about Putin became all too clear with Ukraine uh, invasion, then that's when Britain woke up and lots of MPs called for these lawyers to be named and blamed and shamed. But I would rather uh, simply reform the law that they're using. You can't blame lawyers for using the law. Uh, if it's a bad law, uh, the best thing to do is to change it. And so my first change would be to throw the burden of proof where it belongs on the claimant. And this is the one reason now why America will not enforce British libel judgments, because putting the burden of proof on the defence is, they say, antipathetic to the First Amendment. And it means that Britain has had a lot of cases where libel damages have been paid, um, and announcements made, uh, allegations are libelous, uh, where they've turned out to be true. 
classic example was John Profumo, who won libel damages from newspapers for daring to suggest that he'd slept with Christine Keeler. Uh, they couldn't prove it. And of course, in time, after they'd paid up, uh, it was uh, proved absolutely true when he had to confess. So, but there are many cases of this kind. And uh, clearly, uh, it is not possible. In, in many cases, dealing with foreigners, dealing with Russians, uh, to prove for the defense, to prove the truth. So I think it's only right that the claimant who wants the money should have to prove the untruth of the statement. Jeffrey, can I come in there? Peter Leonard, um, mm. I'm, I'm really enjoying our discussion here and I'd, I'd love to, we can, we can get into the philosophical argument of shifting the burden of proof, but I, I loved your reference to the many cases. Obviously, you've had the most wonderful, uh, lengthy legal career in, in, in London and in the UK. Um, and just looking from this side of the pond, our side of the water, there were quite a few high-profile libel cases over the years where the defendant won. I'm thinking of Jeffrey Archer. I'm thinking of Jonathan Aiken. I'm thinking of all those cases with George Carmen. So it's not it's not just one-way traffic, is it? I mean, there has been a lot of success where media organisations have stood up for themselves and have been successful uh, to the skill of wonderful lawyers like yourself. Uh, so it's not all one-way traffic, sure it's not? It's not all one-way traffic, but on the other hand, to take the case to the Supreme Court, or previously the House of Lords, it was very often only American newspapers who were wealthy enough to pay yeah. to hazard the millions that it cost them to reform the law. And in many, still in many cases, Geoffrey Archer, classic example, who was sued, the uh, newspaper for daring to suggest that he had had sex with a prostitute and uh, all it could come up with by way of evidence was the fact that uh, he had paid a woman who was a prostitute 2,000 pounds back in 1996 when that was worth a lot more money. And I suppose you would say that on the balance of probabilities, that meant he had had sex with her. But no, the jury could not be convinced that uh, the burden on the media had been satisfied by that evidence. And so the money was paid. And some years later, of course, Mr. Lord Archer was uh, uh, sent to prison for perjury in that case. So there are a number of cases where um, people have used libel law, wealthy people have used libel law, and that has become more um, visible and more, if you like, outrageous by yes. the fact that they are Russians who are sanctioned. There's even a case that's come to light this year, or last year actually, where Elliot Higgins, who is the founder of that remarkable website that is uh, exposing some of the Russian dirty tricks, was sued by a man called Putin Chef, the architect of the Wagner Group of companies. And he, of course, was sanctioned by the British government 
because of his involvement in human rights abuses. He was sanctioned by the uh, Americans. Uh, he had really no reputation. But after being sanctioned, he was allowed to bring in a million pounds to pay his lawyers to bring this action. So yeah. it was, we got ourselves into that ridiculous situation. I think the, the question uh, that is now very clear is, do we go after the reputation lawyers? In America, they're trying to pass a, a rule that they should have their money seized if they've got any. I think that's unfair. In, everyone is entitled to access to justice, but I think we should change the law so that it makes it much less likely that they will sue. So can I bring you back to the issue of juries? You, you pointed out that the jury mm. um, uh, uh, effectively found in favour of Geoffrey Archer, um, but you, the juries were taken out of defamation trials in the UK some years ago, and you've recommended that they be reintroduced. Now, the, the issue we've had in Ireland is that jury, juries have been perceived to have given awards that are far too high, and there have been various cases yes. where... The, the same case has gone backwards and forwards to the Supreme Court, where the original jury, having found too high an award, the subsequent jury granted an even higher award. Um, mm. But the so I'm just wondering what your view is of juries. Well, in, in civil trials generally, can they approach the matter in a way that is fair from both sides' point of view? No, I don't. I don't support juries as determinants of how much money the plaintiff should get. Uh, we had this experience some years ago when, uh, and the problem was really the judges who couldn't give directions that resulted in clear awards. There was one judge who said to his jury, don't award Mickey Mouse money, <laughs> which the jury seemed to have taken to an invitation to award money associated with Scrooge McDuck because they awarded one and a half million pounds to Lord Aldington, who was uh, mm. libeled by the suggestion that he knew when he was sending Cossacks back after the war to Stalin that uh, they would be executed. So <laughs> that meant we took it to the European Court of human rights, which said this is an absurd uh, verdict, which it was. Mm -hmm. So judges will now, uh, the highest award that a judge can give is about £300,000. But I think there is a case. If defendants want their historic right to trial by jury, let them ask for it and be given it. It may mean the trial will be longer or more expensive, but I think it is uh, a historic right. I think juries well, sometimes uh, add a touch of equity to the proceedings. I've known of cases where very wealthy people have been turned off suing because they can't quite be sure that a jury will not smell a uh, something that a judge won't 
smell about them. So uh, I think that it is it would be more acceptable to bring back the jury to decide. Decides uh, liability uh, rather than quantum fact. Yes, decide whether public interest exists, whether the allegation was substantially true. I think that is, but I would not advocate bringing back the power of juries to give damages. I think that should be uh, much better controlled by judges. Geoffrey, what about the issue of costs? Uh, I loved references in your book to, you talked about how expensive libel trials are. And of course, I mean, it's very high-end law, so it's going to be expensive. Uh, and I particularly liked your reference as a junior counsel to the, the fashion accessory that is a junior counsel, mm. uh, where some King's counsel, as I suppose they are now, uh, are charging £1,000 uh, an hour. Um, is there any way of doing it more cost-effectively? I mean, does it have to be so expensive from your experience? No, it doesn't. In Italy and France, the average cost of us taking a libel action is 15,000 15, euros. So it can be done less expensively. It can be done ideally by mediation. Uh, it could be taken to the uh, press body that uh, does purport, although it's a problem that it's paid for by the newspapers, uh, but in some cases it can offer mediation. So, uh, but essentially uh, you've got to strip away the uh, whole business one Court of Appeal once called it uh, an archaic saraband, which is a Spanish dance in triple time. But it is a, uh, I, I go into it in the book and explain all the different uh, events that go on, the letter before action, the bullying response, <clears throat> the tedious allegation versus allegation of the lawyers that rack up the costs. So, uh, yes, I think you can have a system which throws out unmeritorious actions, throws out actions that can't be resolved and uh, for various reasons. And I think with a better, with, with the burden of proof on the claimant would mean uh, a number of claimants would not be able to bring the matter forward and uh, so on. I think you could get uh, better, smarter, faster results. Isn't it an area of law, though, Jeffrey? That's that's very attractive to legal practitioners and to barristers. And oh. you know, th there's there's an element of theatre in the law we know, and you know that it's it's the centre of attention, high profile uh, people in the dock and lawyers, you know, using their skill. Uh, it, it is very attractive to people like yourself over the years, wasn't it? As an area of law yes. to practice it. Oh, without doubt, it's very entertaining. And uh, I've suggested that it should be televised. I mm. don't see why uh, you shouldn't. I mean, it's perfect for television, libel cases. The complainant can't object. They say they want their reputation publicly vindicated. The defendant can't object. Uh, he or she says it's in the public interest. And uh, so let the public judge. So I would uh, suggest television, which might, uh, in fact, 
discourage a number of complainants from bringing their cases because, you know, it's expensive. Uh, public money is involved in keeping a court in session for weeks, if not months, for big libel sure. cases. I would, uh, in fact, suggest they charge. I, if we're going to have libel cases shortly with Meghan Markle uh, suing mm -hmm. the Daily Mail, I will let the newspapers or let the television stations pay for the rights to cover those kind of case media law cases. But uh, not to, uh, I think it is a serious matter that the uh, cost, that the uh, whole involvement of British justice ends up with something that is so profoundly unjust as libel cases. And of course, I do explain in the book that we now have a privacy law that has really uh, grown like topsy and is now causing great problems for the media. You mentioned with apparent approval the US rule in New York Times and Sullivan, which effectively mm. gives qualified privilege to public figures. And my concern about that has always been that it seems to have given free reign to channels like Fox News to say the sort of things about Barack Obama that, that would be considered highly defamatory in any other country. Do you not think that goes too far in the US or do you think that it, that, that, that should work in the UK as well? Well, for US society, it means that public figures can have anything said about them mm. subject to the recklessness test. If they're said mm. maliciously, you could sue. If they're said in a way that is reckless as to truth or falsity, then they can sue. So that gives them protection against irresponsible journalism. Mm. I think the the problem with the difference between British and American law is that for many years we've had this strange situation where books and articles can be published in America where they can't be published in Britain and indeed uh, often because the British paper is circulated in Europe, mm. therefore in Europe or in Ireland. I remember one of my first tasks as a young libel lawyer was to vet the Time magazine as to whether it could publish in Britain Daniel Moynihan's comment about Henry Kissinger, that Henry, Henry doesn't lie uh, because it's in his interests, he lies because it's in his nature. So there <laughs> were... Cases like that, where information was being published in America, where it and it couldn't be. And that's still the case, certainly with books about the royal family. But, and of course, there's so much more now than there was then. But it is a serious uh, test that is, for America, does seem to be workable. You decide whether the claimant is a public figure and then you decide whether he's been uh, falsely 
accused recklessly or uh, maliciously. But, mm. of course, there are cases fall on either side. The test case, which was a New York Times case involving a police officer in Alabama who sued the New York Times for a report that was reasonably accurate about beating up protesters in the 60s. And uh, the court applied the First Amendment, said he's a public figure, a public official, so it was uh, fair enough to report his actions, even if it was uh, some of the material was inaccurate or exaggerated. So I think that uh, given the European law gives greater latitude to coverage of public figures rather than private people, uh, I think that is, I suppose, the the consequence of political power or of celebrity. And Jeffrey, in your in your book, um, you, you make the distinction then between what you've just described as being this, the, the the situation that exists in America, with that in Britain, where privacy set against the public interest, and how um, the, the public interest are you know that trying to privacy has always trumped the public interest. And when you when you match the two, when you try and let's say invade somebody's privacy or you publish something about somebody that's deemed to invade their privacy, um, it is very hard to get a public interest defence for that. Yes, it is now, and the Supreme Court recently made it even more difficult. And it's very damaging to news public newsworthy publications because when you look at journalism, you find in Britain anyway that the majority of newsworthy publications are in fact leaks, usually leaks from government. And all the big stories we've had recently have come out of people talking uh, who are bound as employees not to talk. Now, some of these stories can be very important. The stories about Boris Johnson and his cronies having their drinking, leaving parties while COVID was underway. The story about the health minister, Matt Hancock, um, groping his girlfriend in breach of COVID law. That too came from uh, a privacy leak. The stories about MPs who spent their allowances on duck ponds and so forth mm. uh, a few couple of years ago came from breach. And now what the courts have said is that it's more important to maintain that sort of privacy than to have the public interest outweigh it. And I think that's basically wrong. And it's a great, they've said, for example, that anyone who's subject to police action has a right to privacy, or they call it a reasonable expectation of privacy. So now we're in the absurd situation where a conservative MP, we know he's conservative, is, has been arrested for rape, and the public can't be told who it is. Uh, mm. He can wander around Westminster without anyone realising. This is before charge, is this? Yeah, he's got a right, a reasonable expectation 
whenever he's in a police station uh, of privacy so that no one can know whether he's being prosecuted for uh, or whether he's being investigated for corruption. Uh, there was a case at much the same time of a BBC figure who was found in a brothel and the courts decided that he did have a, a reasonable expectation not to be photographed when he was in the brothel, but he didn't. Uh, it was wrong to expose him as being in the brothel in the first place. So we have these uh, continuing arguments, but what gets lost is the newsworthiness of covering what the police are doing. The British police have had some dreadful uh, failures. Uh, Operation Midland, where uh, they completely, I was acting for one of the former MPs whom they turned over and spread dreadful lies about. Uh, so these cases, uh, I mean, the media does need the right to investigate what the police are doing. And uh, privacy law makes that increasingly difficult. And uh, Jeffrey, just I'm, I'm thinking when you talk about privacy law, I'm thinking of the late Max Mosley and, and the cases he brought. And, you know, he was he was a champion of, you know, the notion that people are entitled to privacy uh, and and was deemed to have done society some service. Uh, well, how, how do you feel about that? Would you agree? Well, it's a case where I would prefer that a jury, you see, juries have never had any role in privacy cases. And I think they should, because it was uh, an interesting question. They, he was uh, hired a number of women to provide him with a spanking orgy. And uh, the news of the world rather thought that it was Nazi-themed. And so the idea that the son of uh, Britain's great uh, fascist should uh, be uh, involved in spanking orgies with the Nazi theme um, was actually refuted by the judge. But of course, Mosley was exposed as being an <laughs> an aficionado of spanking orgies. And uh, he was awarded £60,000, a lot of money in those days, for having his privacy violated. And I think that there were a lot of raised eyebrows at that decision. But I think that's the sort of decision that should be left to a jury rather than made by a judge. Um, in the justice game, you discuss the a number of cases involving Mary Whitehouse, um, who you, I, I think you became reasonably friendly with as well. Um, do you do you see any similarity between her sort of puritanical view of uh, television and what now described as either cancel culture or woke culture, where the media sort of almost feel the need to self censor because they're afraid of offending somebody? No, I emphatically not. I knew Mary quite well by dint of being <laughs> what she called the devil's advocate. <laughs> and uh, she was someone who was run by the moral rearmament movement. And her 
antipathy to homosexuals, her uh, blanket uh, approach to censorship of anything which was pro-gay or was in any way um, explicit was something that I don't think people who are woke or are in favor of woke are involved in. I mean, the, the, those who are enemies of wokedom may be conservative, as Mary Whitehouse was, but I don't think they're animated by the same uh, religious concerns that, that she had. And indeed, there was a moment when, and because she was uh, politically uh, very supportive of the of Conservative Party, there was a moment when Labour was started to talk rather in the terms of Andrea Dworkin, wanted to ban sex shops, wanted to crack down on <clears throat> soft porn, which was encouraged actually by Margaret Thatcher, um, and Mary could, at that moment, I think a year in British history, could have moved to the language of the left and become uh, a politically correct campaigner. Mm. But that was not her style, and she missed that moment, and yeah. uh, hence she became in the end, something of a figure of thumb. Jeffrey, <laughs> we want to tell our listeners that we're talking to, to you through the magic of, of Zoom, because uh, you're in Sydney at the moment. Have you returned to Australia or have you left the Royal Ports of Justice? No, I'm having a bit of a break. I had a, it was a big year last year because I was acting for Lula in the, uh, to get rid of his corruption convictions, which were, hmm. and ended by his, entered by his enemy and enemies and uh, it was therefore an important task so i was uh, very pleased by his accession to the pres presidency of brazil but i'm now um, trying to do a new edition of my book on crimes against humanity i haven't uh, the last edition was in 2012, and a lot has happened in the international law field since then. Uh, not all of it, or much of it, good. So I have to bring uh, Putin's barbaric attack on Ukraine into the question of international law, which is basically uh, of course, depends on state. So I've got to write uh, substantially about that. But there are other cases that I'm involved in, mainly to do with the European Court of Human Rights uh, or the international tribunals that deal with human rights. And I'm not, therefore, appearing much in the British courtrooms. But, however, time and may thank, come. I haven't hung my wig up yet. No, and, and wonderfully so. Um, and I'm just curious about your background because you are Australian and very proud, a very proud Aussie, I know. Um, how has that impacted on your career? 
in London. Did, did you feel like a bit of an outsider? Or I know you went to Oxford and you did all the traditional <laughs> things that your colleagues on the bench, no doubt, have done. Um, but was, did that inform things or how was that, Jeffrey? Oh, I think it didn't directly affect my progress because, of course, I'd been a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and so done the establishment things. But it left me, nonetheless, with a sense of uh, saying what I thought and uh, I wasn't prepared to uh, be as uncritical as many others who shared my view. So undoubtedly, uh, if you're an Australian in Britain, uh, they let you know it, and you might as well. There are some who uh, affect an English accent, and I've always had this accent as a speech defect when I was a little boy in Sydney, but uh, they nonetheless affect uh, an English accent and English manners, or as they perceive them, but it's not affected me, and I think it's probably, if anything, been of assistance in carving out uh, a career in human rights and in founding. Uh, there's certainly the largest human rights chambers uh, in Britain at the moment. I can't help thinking, though, as somebody who worked in media law over the years and was involved in so many cases, I mean, maybe you had a greater insight into Rupert Murdoch on the other side, being a fellow Antipodean. <laughs> well, I sued him once and uh, for Michael Foote. And you never, it took everyone by surprise that the proprietor was sued. But I found an old way of getting into him. And I, I took him on and very... Uh, <laughs> he, he caved in and confessed and paid a lot of money uh, to Michael Foote, which gave him a good laugh in his old age. So, Jeffrey, thank you very much for, for this conversation. We could talk for for ages, but unfortunately, we probably ought to, 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 to wrap it up. Um, there's a question I think we told you that we always ask of our guests. And obviously, it goes without saying that we're recommending your book, Lawfare, but is there any book that you would like to recommend to our um, listeners, mainly lawyers and law students, that, uh, that might be of use to them in their careers or their studies? I thought about that, and I'm afraid and uh, I'm ashamed to be such an seemingly egotist, but it might be worth, if they're lawyers or want a, a good story about a lawyer, to take a look at my book, the Tyrannicide Brief, because it is about an idealistic lawyer, uh, mm. so idealistic that he took uh, the poison chalice, the brief to prosecute King Charles I, and he implemented it, and indeed he became a judge in Ireland, mm. where, of course, being appointed by Cromwell, history hasn't had very much to say of him. But in fact, looking at his record in Ireland, he was very much uh, on the side of the tenants rather than the landlords. And so hmm. he was, in fact, looked down on by the English uh, as being a judge who was fair and in favour of tenants. But of course, when the uh, Cromwell died and things changed, he was uh, hauled off to the, the tower 
and was faced with a, a totally rigged trial and then uh, he was killed in, quarters. <laughs> in, in a pretty terrible way with his entrails pulled out and set fire to in front of his eyes. And I think so so uh, that's a story that every lawyer, I think, should be aware of and should ask themselves. And it was the start of, of a lot of our legal ethics, uh, the duty to uh, represent, the duty to one's client. Um, and so it does vivify, I think, the beginnings of the notion that you have a client to be loyal to, even if the heavens fall, and as they did mm. on poor old John Cook. And I, and I think that the book also showed that Charles I had had a, a rather more reasonable trial than historians had previously indicated. That's right. And if I remember rightly, it was the fact that he didn't recognise the court. It was entered as a guilty plea. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it was interesting that historians can get things so wrong. I mean, every historian of the trial of Charles I says that the, it was Cook who read the indictment. And of course, as every lawyer knows, going back five centuries, it is the clerk of the court. Uh, that's perhaps a minor thing, but it does point to the fact that every now and again, it's good to have practicing lawyers look at yeah. these issues rather than academics or historians. Mm -hmm. Well, we could probably talk about the Tyrannicide Brief for a long time, but certainly um, having read it some years ago, I would highly endorse your recommendation uh, to, to our listeners. Um, so, Jeffrey Robinson, thank you very much for joining myself and here on the Fifth Court, and I know our listeners will be really interested to hear our discussion. Thank you very oh, much is. for joining us. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. OK, so that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Geoffrey Robertson, QC. I keep calling him QC, he's a KC now, uh, for coming in and talking to us about his fascinating book, Lawfare. Uh, what an interview, Mark. Yeah, Did you enjoy that? Well, I just, the, the, <laughs> the idea that British justice was a confidence trick was the thing that really uh, that I took away. And he had plenty of good old-fashioned yarns for he us as well, hadn't he? Yeah. And uh, I wonder when you're a grandee like that, do you have more, are you more liberal in terms of your ability Possibly to tell stories? A little bit more leeway, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I thought that was great. So delighted with that interview. We'd also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show, and in particular to Lee Brennan. Well done, Lee. Uh, you did a great job on this show. If you have any comments or any legal stories you would like to raise with us, please contact us on our website. Uh, Mark, we're still asking people to share. Absolutely, to tell all their friends and colleagues and anybody else who they think yeah, might find kind of, this, we're, this we're, interesting. We're, we're, dare I say it, we're very happy with the audience we have, but we're always trying to get new listeners and maybe with Geoffrey out there, there'll be a few international Australian fans. Yes, absolutely. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you very soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.